Hello and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host Rick Black and in this episode we are going to discuss the Dulce Base. In episode 2, I just barely mentioned the Dulce Base, but in this episode I'm going to dive deeper into the story or conspiracy theory or whatever it is. I will talk about three alleged abductions and I will go in order of occurrence. The first one was Judy Doherty. On May 23rd of 1973, Judy was driving home from Bingo, just outside of Houston, Texas. She had her daughter, mother, sister, and brother-in-law in the car with her. After dropping off her sister and brother-in-law, they had continued driving down the highway. They noticed a bright light had suddenly appeared in the night sky. Even more chilling, it appeared the light was following the car. The light continued to follow the car until Judy finally pulled over so they could exit the vehicle and get a closer look. Outside the car, Judy and her passengers were amazed to see a huge, disc-shaped object hovering over a nearby field. The craft had a neat row of what she described as windows along its thin edge and was silent as it hung in the air. Suddenly, the craft shot straight up, disappearing into the night sky in mere seconds. While most of the witnesses soon forgot the event, Judy would continue to have intense nightmares. The other passengers in the car with Judy would recall her leaving the car after seeing the light coming towards them. Then she would climb back in and start the car. After the incident, I'm sure because of the nightmares, after six years... She was referred to Dr. Leo Sprinkle. It is important to know that Dr. Sprinkle was a psychologist and a researcher of UFO contactee experiences. Dr. Sprinkle put her under hypnosis to uncover her lost memories. Under hypnosis, she was taken back to the moment she stepped outside the car. She described a spotlight shining on her car from above, which had a, quote, substance to it, end quote. But she couldn't make out what it was. She saw a small animal struggling against the light. It was squirming and trying to get free as the spotlight drew it upwards. She would eventually state the small animal was a young brown and white calf. She witnessed the mutilation of the calf by gray aliens. While she was witnessing this, she also was receiving messages telepathically. The message, quote, it has to be done right away. End quote, and, quote, this had to be done, and it was for the betterment of mankind, end quote. I got this information from UFO Insight. They state in their article that the stories of Judy Durati and Myrna Hansen matched, and even the wording was identical. We'll come back to that. The abduction of Myrna Hansen occurred two months after this regression session. As she was driving home from Oklahoma to Eagle's Nest, New Mexico, on May 5, 1980, Myrna Hansen and her six-year-old son saw several UFOs over a nearby field near the town of Cimarron. One of the UFOs caught a cow grazing in the field and lifted it on board with a tractor beam. The next thing they knew, the UFOs were gone, and although the car engine was no longer running, they were back in their vehicle. So Myrna goes through regression therapy with none other than Dr. Leo Sprinkle. And here's what she discovered. One of the UFOs spotted Myrna's car, and both her and her son were taken on board with a tractor beam. 
Her description of her abductors matched others of a gray alien. Both her and her son were undressed and subject to various examinations and procedures. After this, whether intentional or not, they both witnessed the mutilation of the cow that had been captured earlier. Myrna would recall one of her captors informing her that, quote, it had to be done, end quote. Myrna also recalled that there was a tall man who had a, quote, jaundiced color, end quote, stating that their objection was a mistake and shouldn't have happened. During this time, the craft had come to land in the New Mexican desert. Myrna and her son were led to a hidden elevator and transported to a base city of operations, inside or under the nearby mountains. She saw more gray aliens busily working at various stations inside the base. She was shocked to see them working alongside humans. Somehow, she was separated from her son and went into a panic. She ran from her captors, screaming her son's name. She eventually ran into a dimly lit room with vats of bubbling liquid that housed suspended human body parts. She was screaming and crying at the same time and collapsed on the floor, unable to process what she was seeing. Her captors found her there shortly after and took her to another room and inserted several devices into her body. These devices would later be confirmed following a CAT scan. Her son returned soon after and they would make their way to a large empty room where both were subjected to intense flashes of light. Myrna said this would wipe her memories clean, sort of like men in black flashy thingy. After that, they would enter a craft similar to the one that brought them and taken back to their car on the highway. The third story is an ab- the abduction of Krista Tilton. July 1987, Krista suddenly passed out in the afternoon, and when she regained consciousness, she found that she had disappeared for three hours, during which she did not know where she was and what happened to her. At first, she didn't give it much thought. She thought maybe she had passed out from fatigue or something. But then she started having nightmares. In the nightmares, she was seeing strange things and feeling really scared. She thought that maybe these nightmares were connected to her missing three hours. This led her to look for similar cases that happened to other people, and she came to the conclusion that she could possibly be the victim of alien abduction. So she decided to go through regression therapy. During the sessions, everything came to her very clearly. The first thing she remembered was that she had not just lost consciousness, but this happened after two small humanoid creatures approached her and grabbed her by the arms. Her next memory was that she was on a table inside a ship. Another humanoid approached her. This was her guide. He gave her a glass of liquid and told her to drink, and she did. Afterward, she felt energized, cheerful. Her guide took her out of the ship, and they were in a deserted area on a small hill. I'm going to read directly from the article written by Krista. It was dark, but I saw a faint light near what looked like a cave. We approached this place, and then I saw a man, or a very humanoid-looking one, dressed in a red military-style jumpsuit, like the pilot's. Mine, the guide, seemed to know the man because he greeted him as we got closer, 
and I noticed that he had some sort of patch on his uniform and that he was carrying an automatic weapon. When we entered the cave, we found ourselves in a tunnel, and I realized that we were going directly under a large hill or mountain. There, we were met by another guard in red, and then I saw a computerized checkpoint with two cameras on each side. To my left, there was a large groove where a small transit vehicle was parked. To my right, it looked like a long corridor with many offices. We got into a transit car and it seemed took a very long time to drive to another protected area. Then I was told to stand on some kind of scale light device facing the computer screen. I saw the lights flash and some calculations were done. And then a card was issued with holes punched in it. Later I realized that it was used for identification inside the computer. I asked my guide where we were going and why. He replied sparingly that he should show me some things be that I need to know for future use. Then he told me that we had just entered the first level of the institution. I asked what institution it was, but he did not answer. The guide took her to a large elevator with no door. They went downstairs while she noticed that they were going down to level two. It looked like an ordinary office building with people going back and forth and none of them paying any particular attention to Tilton or the guide. The only difference were the armed guards and colored coveralls all over the place. They walked past a place that looked like a huge factory. Next to it was a small flying saucer. There were gray aliens performing maintenance on the craft. After this, Krista was taken to level 5, where she was asked to change. She was given what looked like a hospital gown. She was weighed and scanned with some kind of electrical device and taken past another security post and down another corridor. She was overcome by an overpowering stench. She recognized it as formaldehyde. This is directly from Krista. We approached a large room, and I stopped to look inside. I saw huge, large tanks with computerized sensors attached to them and a huge hand-like device that extended from the top of some tube down into the tanks. The tanks were about four feet high, so from where I was, I could not see what was inside them. I heard a humming sound, and it looked like something was moving inside the tanks. I began to approach the containers, and just then my guide grabbed my hand and dragged me roughly into the corridor. He told me that there was no need to see the contents of the containers and added that this would only complicate matters. We walked down the hall, and then he led me into a large laboratory. I was amazed because I used to work in a laboratory, and here I saw equipment that I had never seen before. At some point, I turned around, and I saw a small gray creature standing with its back to me. He was doing something at the counter. I heard the clink of metal on metal. I heard a similar sound when I was preparing surgical instruments for my doctor in surgery. She was ordered to sit on the table in the middle of the room, and she got a feeling that something was wrong. Then a human doctor entered the room. The guide told her he would wait outside. She started crying because she was scared. The gray alien looked at her and turned back to what he was doing. The human doctor called for additional help, and another gray entered the room. The next thing she knew, she was sleepy, and they were examining her. She felt a stabbing pain and she screamed. 
The human doctor stood next to her and rubbed something cold on her stomach, and the pain went away. They continued working on her even though she begged for them to let her go. Afterward, she was sent to change, and she found her guide. The guide told her that this was a very important place and that she would return in a few years. They got in the transit car, and on the way out, she saw the most frightening thing. I'll quote her here. I saw what seemed to be people of various types. They were standing against the wall inside a transparent chamber that looked like a pipe. I came closer, and it seemed to me that they were wax figures. I cannot understand what I saw there. I also saw animals in cages. They were alive. They looked like they were in suspended animation. I went to the transparent cells in which they were kept. I put my hands on the glass, and I leaned over to see if I could get some kind of an answer. But no, I could not understand whether they were alive or dead at that moment. They just didn't move, and I couldn't see if there was liquid in the cells like formaldehyde. I think there was not liquid in this particular case. After that, she was taken to the alien ship, had her memory erased, and then taken back to where she was found. So we have three stories of people being abducted and taken to a secret underground base near Dulce, New Mexico, the Dulce base. In episode two, I briefly mentioned Paul Benowitz. There's a can of worms if I ever saw one. If you're interested in that story, I suggest you read Project Beta by Greg Bishop. I could do an entire podcast on just Paul Benowitz and not cover even half of what I've been able to find. Benowitz was a radio electronics engineer for the Coast Guard, and he worked as an engineer for San Francisco CBS station KPIX and KPHO in Tucson. He founded his own business, Thunder Scientific, making humidity calibration equipment, and has contracts with the U.S. government. Benowitz was a very intelligent man, and that's probably where his troubles came from. He was interested in the UFO alien phenomenon and actually built radio equipment that picked up what he thought were radio signals coming from a secret alien underground base. He also took pictures of UFOs flying near the mountains behind his house. He immediately alerted the nearby Kirtland Air Force Base. The Air Force Base was basically in his backyard, and what he was recording were not aliens. It was top-secret government projects. So the Air Force started a disinformation campaign to keep him focused on aliens and away from what was actually going on. One of the most interesting things I found was the AOS, or Adoptive Optic System. Located high in the Chilean mountains is the VLT, or Very Large Telescope. It is away from the city, so they don't have to worry about light pollution. It is very high, so there's not much atmosphere to see through, but what atmosphere is there is troublesome. I'll come back to that. It uses four 8-meter mirrors working in tandem to collect light from distant stars and gets images that are almost as good as the Hubble Space Telescope without the orbital maintenance problems. When you look at the stars, they twinkle. What causes them to twinkle is atmospheric turbulence. It's like looking at your reflection in a pool of water. If there are waves, it causes disturbance to the image. It's the same with stars when you're viewing them with a telescope. To correct this, they made 
the mirror very thin and flexible and put tiny plungers underneath to deform the mirror to focus it. Problem solved. But the U.S. government wanted to be able to see objects much closer, like satellites from other countries. By aiming lasers at the objects, satellites, they were able to look at how the laser beam was scattered by the air currents and, using a computer software program, bent the telescope mirror just as accurately as if it was using a star or planet to sight on. Benowitz actually took a picture of the laser beam with a camera with a high shutter speed. Now, this laser beam is not visible to the naked eye. The U.S. government does not want our adversaries to know that we are looking at their satellites. The images are so clear, you can actually read the serial numbers on the darn things. Benowitz didn't know what he was taking pictures of. He was led to believe it had something to do with the alien underground base. This had to alarm the Air Force and have them continue on their disinformation campaign. They kept feeding him more and more information about aliens in the underground base that eventually Paul Benowitz was sent to a a mental institution. Gabe Valdez, the New Mexico State Police officer who was known for his investigating of cattle mutilations, was called up to handle the abduction case of Erna Hansen. Gabe thought, I know who would be able to help. Paul Benowitz. He had met Paul at a public meeting about cattle mutilations. So Hansen goes to Albuquerque to meet with Benowitz. Benowitz puts her and her son up in a room in his house and asks James Lorenzen what he should do. Lorenzen suggested contacting Dr. Leo Sprinkle, a psychologist and tenured professor at the University of Wyoming who had been investigating UFO contact reports. We have heard of Dr. Sprinkle before. So, Sprinkle flies in from Wyoming to put Hansen under hypnosis to find out what happened on the night she and her son witnessed a UFO. Now that I have all the parts I need here, I'm going to pull it all together and tell you what I think. First of all, you are free to believe whatever you want. I read a lot of comments about this, and people have many different opinions about what actually happened. Many said things like, If it was one person, then maybe it's not believable. But three people? How could you not believe that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm about to tell you. If you're a hammer, then everything is a nail. Dr. Sprinkle is the hammer. He performed hypnosis on both Hanson and Doherty to discover what their hidden memories were. It would be impossible for him not to lead them in their regression. That is why their stories are almost identical, not because they actually happen that way, but because Dr. Sprinkle led them to think that. Hypnosis is a very fragile and complicated thing. If you are a good hypnotist, you can put someone under and make them believe that they were Napoleon in a former life. So it would be fairly easy to get two people to believe that they were abducted by aliens and taken to a secret underground alien base. Not only that, but Krista Tilton admitted that she didn't know what happened to her and thought it would be a good idea to read about other people's experiences. Right there, she has become biased because she's looking at what happened to other people with similar experiences. What if those experiences were planted by the psychologist looking for alien abduction victims?
Now we have three women with exactly the same experience of being abducted and taken to a secret underground alien base near Dulce, New Mexico. You can believe what you want, but to me, it doesn't pass the smell test. Don't get me wrong. I think something happened to these three ladies. I just don't believe they were taken to an underground alien base. There have been many articles, books, and documentaries on the Dulce base. Phil Schneider went on a speaking tour talking about how he helped build the base. It still doesn't ring true to me. I'm calling BS. If you still believe, I suggest you read Dulce Base by Greg Valdez. Greg Valdez is the son of Gabe Valdez and uses the evidence collected by his father to try to get to the truth of the matter. Remember, believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. There's a ton of stuff on the internet about this topic. Some of it is compelling, and some of it is ludicrous. It can make your head spin. Use your common sense. Feel right. Just because you want it to be true doesn't mean it is true. Take a step back and look at it again. In the next episode, I will be looking at alien abductions. There are a ton of them, from Betty and Barney Hill to Travis Walton. I don't know which one I'm going to look into first, but it should be a fun topic. As I'm doing this research, sometimes I come across more and more theories, and I am changing the way I think about things. In episode one, I was talking about how it didn't make sense for an alien race to travel the vast distance from their planet to ours. But I recently thought, what if they didn't have a choice? At some point, our sun is going to die, and in the process of dying, we'll expand and fry everything on Earth. If we are advanced enough before that happens, we would make giant spacecrafts that could sustain life and send them to another planetary system. Why wouldn't another, more advanced being that is thousands or millions of years ahead of us do the same thing? What if they did? And what if they are here and have always been here, as long as we have? It's something to think about. It's up to you what you believe. Do you personally have a UFO story? Let me know. You can email me at ufoandalienpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 